Guardian Unlimited. Hello, Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Islamophonic. This week it's a show of two halves, exposing the lighter and darker sides of Muslim life. But twas ever thus. Coming up, Madeline Bunting talks about reaction to Salman Rushdie's knighthood. Blogger Baba Ali explains what makes him a funny Muslim. I asked the MCB what it's doing to engage Muslim youth in Britain. And Lokman Ali tells us about his latest theatre project. G! G, come and say salams! Jihad! On a flea for a pea yet again. These boys, gracious, I mean, when do they learn some respect for their bladders? On Friday, it was announced that author Salman Rushdie would be honoured with a knighthood. Since then, there have been furious protests overseas with Union Jacks burning in neighbourhoods, the reissuing of an Iranian fatwa calling for his death, and one government minister even said that a suicide attack would be a justified response to the award. But what about Muslim reaction in this country? On the line with her thoughts is Guardian writer and commentator Madeleine Bunting. Madeleine, what do you think about the British Muslim response? Well, I think it's been somewhat subdued so far, and I'm not very surprised by that. I think these things have a, a long fuse, and I'm sort of watching the situation carefully. But there's a sense of for this generation that they've seen it all before. They saw the whole rouse over the Satanic Verses back in 1988, and there's many, many young Muslims now who are very active in the community who would say things were handled the wrong way back in the late 80s. They'd burning of books, etc., sent the wrong signals, the wrong messages. And I think that there's a sense of, you know, let's be a bit more cautious this time around. Do you think lessons have been learned from the Danish cartoon protests as well? Well, I'm not sure they have. You know, I think, I think it's too early to tell. I think, you know, the Danish cartoons, you know, they came out and it was several months before it became the global issue. But I, I also think that a lot of the sort of focus and attention of Muslim activists at the moment are very taken up with terror legislation and the impact that has on the community. So, you know, now it's a matter of sort of turning around and facing a completely different direction on a totally different issue. And, hey, we've been here before. Do we really want to go back down this route? The anger seems to be directed at Tony Blair and not necessarily Salman Rushdie. I mean, Lord Ahmed's quoted as saying it was a contemptuous parting gift from Tony Blair to the Muslim world. Is it a symbolic gesture? Well, it's, it's interesting because actually a lot of the newspapers are saying that Tony Blair wasn't involved in the decision. Now, Tony Blair's getting blamed, the Queen is getting blamed, and we know the Queen doesn't have any involvement in the awarding of honours. It's a cabinet committee. The problem is there is deep anger within the Muslim world towards Tony Blair and George Bush for Iraq and the foreign policy in the Middle East. So it looks terrible. All kinds of dots are being joined up at the moment in in parts of the Muslim world. But I suspect it's true that Tony Blair didn't have anything to do with this knighthood. I mean, was Rushdie right to accept the knighthood? Well, well, that's a curious one. I mean, if the guy's offered it, he's entitled to make his own decision about whether he wants to accept it or not. I'm rather surprised he wanted it, given that he's now back uh, with the kind of you know threat of assassination and so forth that he struggled with for nine years after um, the fatwa was issued by Iran. So you would have thought the guy would be quite keen on a quiet life right now. But, but you know, given that he was offered it, I think he had every right to accept it. I think the, the questions that are in my mind is, is why exactly 
uh, was it decided to single out this particular author, uh, you know, when there are plenty of other very, very interesting authors. I mean, why didn't Ian McEwan, for example, get awarded a knighthood? There are questions about the literary merits of Rushdie's work. Does he, you know, deserve a knighthood? I mean, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate debate to be had. But I think, you, you know, you have to ask very kind of carefully as to what did the British government think would be the message to the Muslim world by giving Rushdie a knighthood. And I find that, I find that hard to accept. It seems to me to be a, a form of provocation. Someone with way more fans than Salman Rushdie or the British government is American video blogger Baba Ali. He's the face and voice of Ummar Films, a Muslim company that wanted to use the internet as a way of educating and entertaining people about Islam. But what started as a pet project is now a full-time enterprise and a global sensation. Millions of people have seen their work on YouTube, making them the number one Muslim blog on the channel. Assalamu alaikum, my dear respected brothers and sisters. Ever wonder where the Muslims are at? I mean, the masjids are pretty empty. Then all of a sudden during Ramadan, all these Muslims start to come out. Did everyone just come out of hibernation or something? Where all these Muslims come from? I phoned Baba Ali in LA earlier this week and asked him how he came up with the idea of Umar Films. This was actually an accident. The whole idea with Umar Films was to make short films. And after being frustrated of a few friends that were supposed to make a film for me, they ended up not making it. <laughs> I ended up turning on the camera and just start talking from the camera. And what was meant for a few friends got to a few thousand people, and the few thousand became to a few million. And now it's the number one Muslim video blog on the web. So I'm like totally shocked that this many people will be watching something out of my room. <laughs> many Muslims, when they come from overseas, they leave Islam back in their home country. I mean, they bring their traditions, they bring their culture, but their traditions have nothing to do with Islam. For example, the idea of a forced marriage where a woman gets married without her consent, Islam doesn't allow that. Plus, it's totally messed up, man. Islam liberated people from this ignorant way. What kind of issues are you talking about? All kinds of stuff, such, such as uh, culture versus Islam, which is a big issue these days. You see a lot of stuff that Muslims do that are cultural and are really not really anything to do with Islam. And unfortunately, those are the bad things that people see. And Muslims that grow up in, in Muslim families, they can't differentiate between what is culture and what is Islam. And then, of course, some of the funnier issues of how it is to be Muslim and walk through an airport <laughs> and constantly be pulled over even though you are the Muslim been living in that country for like the last 25 years. Hello sir, welcome to our airline. We're doing a random search today and you have been selected. Do you mind if I wave my magic wand around your body? Uh, okay. Sir, it looks like we're all clear. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? Maybe check your backs? Uh, okay. Thank you. I mean part of the appeal is that your work is very funny. How do you make it funny? Actually, believe it or not, I'm not a comedian or anything like that. I don't know write comedy. I'm just a, basically a computer guy who has a desk job. I'm just a, basically a funny storyteller. And that's basically what the videos are like. What's a terrorism country? Any country we're bombing or we're planning to bomb or any country that doesn't support the countries that we're bombing or we're planning to bomb. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? You're a revert to Islam, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I became Muslim back in December of 1995. I came to a point in my life where I decided to start looking for the truth, and I started looking through different religions and different systems, and eventually I came across Islam, and it just, everything made sense. Do you think there's room in mainstream media for niche Muslim entertainment? 
I think so. At the end of the day, when it comes down to humanity issues and it comes down to using a humorous way to show or talk about sensitive issues, I think people can relate to all different levels. And this is why about 30% of our audience right now are non-Muslim. A lot of the issues that I discuss, such as extravagant weddings and how finding your spouse online, these are issues that both Muslim and non-Muslim have to go through. So it's, people can relate on different levels. And uh, I think that's one of the things that's, that makes this video program so interesting for everyone, no matter what religion you come from. Now, with such a busy events calendar, you may well have missed the Muslim Council of Britain's 10th birthday and indeed their AGM at the weekend. But don't worry if you couldn't make it. We have a snippet for you to enjoy. Here's the Deputy Secretary-General, Dr Mohammed Abdulbari, telling delegates about the MCB's main mission. The core message we try to convey is the need for greater unity in our own community and the importance to reach out and make alliances with good and fair-minded people of all faiths and none. We realize that there is a clear need to make MCB more visible in the provincial cities and devolve the work of MCB. It is crucial that we engage more with our young people and women so that they take part proactively in MCB works and other community activities. In this 10th year of MCB's life, we can truly be proud of our remarkable success story. We have charted a journey accosted by challenges and a schedule of works far wider in range and more daunting than we could have possibly anticipated at the outset of our voyage. Together, we defeated attempts to drive a wedge between the Muslim community and the wider society. The task of giving voice to an otherwise voiceless community, working with them and for them to make our mark in the overall tapestry of our national landscape is undeniably demanding. Serving the Muslim community is, in many ways, the essence of the MCB, and thus staying close to the community is vital for us. Well, I caught up with the Secretary-General, Sir Iqbal Sakrani, and asked him what the MCB's aims were for next year. Well, the Muslim Council of Britain, as the largest uh, umbrella body of the Muslim community, has a tremendous responsibility in ensuring that the issues it confronts today, the challenges of social cohesion, security, participation, are all there. And we have to ensure that as this mainstream body, to work through our affiliates in delivering what is needed in the community. When there are so many Muslim interest groups working in Britain now, do you think there is still a role for the MCB? Uh, there's a role for any group that comes in into the mainstream society and able to provide this service uh, it, it projects uh, into the community. MCB has a very important role and will continue to play an important role like many other national representative bodies. Certain sections of the government, in particular Ruth Kelly's department, likes it or not. MCB is the largest umbrella representative body of the Muslim community, which is more than 500 affiliates. Um, but how much dialogue do you actually have with those affiliates? I mean, how much input do they get into what you're saying? Well, the General Assembly was one very important area where they had the opportunity to come and, and raise their issues, concerns. What would you say to your critics who say that you're out of touch with young people and that you have mixed messages on homosexuality and the Holocaust? Our messages are very clear. The issue on homosexuality is nothing new. This is exactly the same position as Muslims, Christians and Jews have. 
Holocaust results been a very clear position. There's an intense discussion going on in terms of its participation. Our central role has, uh, position has been it should be an inclusive event. What about being out of touch with young people? They are 1.8 million Muslims in this country. MCB cannot have a one-to-one -one connection with 1.8 million. This is a misconception and a, um, a misconstruction of our, our position. We work through organizations. We want to encourage organizations to attach more contact with the, with, the, with, the, with the young, whether it's in the mosques, those who attend the mosque. What about those who do not attend the mosque? There are many, how do we get in touch with them? We have to visit the community centers, youth clubs. This is what we have been doing. Our office bearers, our secretary general, uh, have been over the last sort of um, uh, 12 months, visited many youth centers where these sort of elements who are radical, but we have to hear from them. Of course, no Islamophonic would be complete without something from regular contributor Lukman Ali. He's a man of many hats, and this week, as the director of Khayal Theatre Company, he's wearing his drama hat. Lukman and actress Eleanor Martin were rehearsing The Truth About Your Father, which sees the widow of a suicide bomber helping her son come to terms with the legacy left by his father's crime. He hasn't been any trouble. Not really. He's a good lad. He's got a good head on his shoulders. We wrote the play because we wanted to get beyond the hysteria, get beyond the politics. I only wish the world had given him a kinder welcome. It's a play about, which is set 10 years from now, and it's about uh, a widow who is the, uh, the wife, former wife of one of the suicide bombers. A shadow was cast over him before he was even able to cast his own. She's trying to relate to her son um, how she came to understand and how to continue with her life uh, following the, the tragic events. How long the shadow? How dark? Neither he nor I know for sure. I can only trust that the same light that freed me will free him. So that was really what we wanted to do when we set it in a domestic situation um, in order to look at the impact of extremism and terrorism on a family, uh, you know, through the prism of a dialogue between a son uh, and, a, and a widow. Only through that type of reflection, that type of humane reflection, um, beyond the hype, that we can really come to terms with some of the realities uh, that we need to in order to prevent extremism, in order to understand extremism, in order to build channels of dialogue and understanding. Neither he nor I know for sure. I can only trust that the same light that freed me will free him. In time. But not too long. Oh, Allah, not too long. It's a very controversial subject for a play, so how do you deal with that? I mean, you could be accused of engendering sympathy for suicide bombers and their families. How do you get around that? Well, I think anyone who's a victim of terrorism and extremism, whether it be the family of the extremists and terrorists um, themselves or the victims of a terrorist action, deserve our sympathy because they're, they're all victims. So I have no problem with people feeling that, but the objective of the play is not to uh, promote sympathy, um, it's to promote understanding and it's to promote a deeper deeper reflection and contemplation about about ourselves as human beings and our predisposition to extremism when certain factors come into play in our lives. Although it sounds very harrowing, it's actually quite a beautiful play because it, it's largely storytelling um, because the mother uses 
stories, traditional stories from the Muslim world, as a way of explaining to her, her son, um, her understanding of the very the human, the real human issues and conditions behind what led her, her former husband, to ext this extreme act of terror. There was once a king who fiercely believed in all he had been taught. He was convinced that he was right about everything. Proud was he. What we basically did was we, we, we trolled through our library of stories to find stories which had parallels, symbolic, metaphorical parallels to issues of anger, to issues of dogmatism, to issues of manipulation and so on. They are addressing the issues, underlying issues in, under extremism but not directly. That is the strength of the piece because for a child, you're trying to help a child come to terms with things. The mother, for instance, says in the play that you can't try to tackle this head on. You need to do it indirectly. It needs to be subtly done. So we have a story from India, we have a story from Iraq, and we have a story from, from Muslim China. The king had three daughters, all of them beautiful and cultured, especially the youngest who was loved by all the kingdom for her charm and vivacity. Can you identify with a character at all? Oh, as a mother, yes. I mean, yes, I can in that respect because um, I'm also a mother myself with three children. So I can understand very personally how, how desperate I would feel in that situation if I was wanting to save my own child and give them a future, you know, a hope following a, a, such a tragic event. So in that way, I can relate to it. Welcome, Salamji. Are you all right? <laughs> what is it? Didn't you make it in time? Oh, well, come on, stay and have some fruit or something before you go and get lost in your homework. Have you read any accounts of widows of suicide bombers? I mean, have you sort of gone through newspaper archives or documentaries? Yeah, we did read, um, I you know, read anything that, that came out in the press uh, following the events of um, July 7 and of what the... Um, wives themselves said. What conclusions did you come to while you were doing your research and in understanding what might drive people to these actions? Internal conflict. We feel that internal conflict around identity crises, around the conflict between modernity and tradition, about the conflict between the sacred and the secular, these are, we feel, the driving forces behind extremism. A person's inability to reconcile these realities in their lives can predispose them to a susceptibility to, to going down the route of radicalization and on to terrorism. So a lot of our stories are about reconciliation, you know, and, and how do you understand yourself? Because without an understanding of oneself, one really cannot prevent any extreme actions or ex excesses of any type, whether it be excesses in terms of consumption or excesses in terms of uh, inability to control one's mood and one's character and so on. Yes, those are the questions I found hardest to understand. Because I did not understand. I could not understand. Time now to hear your views on some of the stuff we've covered in recent podcasts. A couple of weeks ago, I visited a Muslim boxing exhibition in the West London Islamic Centre. Van Persiewinks was surprised that such an event would occur in a place. He... Wouldn't expect to see the same thing in a church, synagogue or gurdwara. But 
ND1 online wasn't so shocked. After all, the Shaolin Monastery, probably the best-known Chinese martial arts centre of excellence, was a Buddhist temple. Kapagadi liked the idea of using a mosque as a boxing venue. What an absolutely fantastic idea! I've always been in favour of more sporting events and interaction with the youth through mosques. Unfortunately, young Muslims are feeling very polarised at the moment, and all these negative tendencies need an outlet. And what better than sport and some good old boxing? It's perfect. But Kamal Hussein found the event to be quite offensive. It is a veiled attack and conspiracy on Islam. Boxing's a horrible sport. Bruises, broken nose, blood. Mosque is a house prayer for people seeking salvation and peace. The last thing you want to do is to walk in a mosque and see people fighting. This is very distasteful, and I hope the organisers will reconsider their feeble approach and attitude to Islam. Also on Islamophonic, we looked at the Muslim sitcom Little Mosque on the Prairie. MuslimSpain.com liked the programme. Little Mosque on the Prairie sitcom is a great example of how contemporary Muslims can touch on serious issues pervading within their communities, a real good piece. And he also enjoyed the piece we did on the British Library's exhibition of religious texts. I think this podcast shows the great similarities between the Abrahamic religions, especially in the museum edition. How all religions have helped in cultivating one another's cultural advancements, it's something that should be encouraged to show how these faiths can live in harmony once more, as they have done in the past. Another example of this can be seen in the following blog, www.muslimspain.blogspot.com. Leave a message on our blog page if you have any web recommendations, if you have any thoughts on today's programme, or if you just want to praise our show, as Anthrocate did. One reason I like Islamophonic is the host always sounds like she's having so much fun talking about whatever the topic is. Another is how informative and analytical it is. I also like that we hear such a variety of voices representing different points of view. Islamophonic is hands down my favourite podcast. Thanks for such a great programme. Well, thanks, Anthrocate. I'll be back next week. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and presented by me, Riazat Fat. Jazakallah for listening and walaikum assalam. Guardian Unlimited.